ready to read and honor God's word. Any educators in the room? Any educators? One time for the educators. All right, a few of us. If you're an educator online, hey, we have a special educators call. I'll be hosting along with a bunch of other pastors through Church United. It is this Thursday, which is the National Day of Prayer at 4 p.m. There'll be more info on our social media, but we'd love to have you join us for that. It'll happen over Zoom, so it's online for about an hour. We'd love to have you join us. Hey, we're in the midst of a new series going through the book of Nehemiah called The Leadership Challenge. Everybody say The Leadership Challenge. How many of you think leadership is a challenge, right? Uh, If you missed the past few weeks, uh, we have begun on the hypothesis that every single human being, every single homo sapien, every single breather of oxygen in your lungs is a leader. You might be leading five people. You might be leading 5,000 people. You might only have to lead yourself, but we all have to lead. The question is not if. The question is merely how and who we are leading. Nehemiah's context is a world in crisis. It's a world full of division. It's a world full of dissension. It's a world where the walls are broken down, and it is very tempting to feel absolutely hopeless. And yet, in the midst of this crisis, God calls a leader. And by the way, he has not stopped doing that to this day. Last week, we talked about the dangers of deconstruction with no vision for reconstruction. We said what that's called is a wrecking ball. Doesn't take much skill at all. But the vision that we see through Nehemiah is a vision for reconstruction. We've been dialoguing on the fact that if we want to follow Jesus and lead well, it's going to require God's burden, God's heart, God's vision, and God's plan. This week, I want to keep going in Nehemiah's story. We'll be in chapter 2, looking at what I would say is easily the most challenging aspect of leadership by far, people. Can I get an amen? Come on, somebody. Hey, turn in your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 2. Let me fill us all in if you're watching online or here in the room to catch us up to speed. Up to this point in Nehemiah's journey, Nehemiah has heard about the walls that are broken down in his home city of Jerusalem. He's never been there personally, but he feels the weight of the moment. The city lies in ruins. The temple has been destroyed. The house of God has been desecrated, and his people are in shambles. Nehemiah gets a burden. In fact, what he does with this burden, you remember what he does, he, he takes it to God. He prays and he fasts. Four months go by and finally he has the audacity to be sad in the presence of the king, a act that would and could and should probably be punishable by death. Everybody say, whoa. But Nehemiah does not die. In fact, the king asks him why. It's kind of Dr. Susie. I like it. The king asks him why, and so Nehemiah, filled with unction from four months of prayer and fasting, goes ahead, and he, he does it. He shoots his shot. He says, king, here's a vision, and the king says, all right, all right, big boy. What's the plan? Thank God Nehemiah is ready. He lays out a plan. The king, the king gives him permission to go, gives him the resources, and the next move for Nehemiah, the next thing that he does, the first thing that he does when he arrives, can you guess what it is? He gathers together some people some people. Nehemiah chapter 2, we'll pick up in verse 9. Dolphin fans, how we feeling about this draft so far? All right, waddle with me, waddle with me, waddle with me. That's what it's going to be. We got Jalen Waddle and a few more. We'll see how we turn out. I am hopeful and optimistic as a perennial Dolphins fan. Please don't let me down one more time. All right, verse 9, if you're ready, say, let's do this. Here we go. 
Nehemiah speaking here, he says, So I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates, and I gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent me army officers and cavalry with me. Now when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this, they were not so happy. In fact, they were very disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Now I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. And by night, everybody say, by night. This is going to be important. We'll come back to it. I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal wall, the, the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on to the fountain gate and the king's pool. But there wasn't enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. Now, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I, was doing, what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, here, he makes the pitch, finally. You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come and let us rebuild. Let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem would no longer be in disgrace. I told them about the gracious hand of my God that was on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began the work. Verse 19, but haters gonna hate, man. When Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? They asked, are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying the God of heaven will give us success. Come on, come on, Malik. The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Let's pray. Jesus, help us out this morning and remind us who we are and what we need for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor. You can give him a little air high five or a real one. If you came with them, you can have your seat wherever you're watching from online as well. You ever had to deal with a difficult person? Do not point at the one next to you and do not point at your spouse. All right, I'm not trying to set you up for chaos in the home. But anybody here, you ever had to deal with a difficult person? Um, growing up in high school, especially before I met Jesus, because your pastor has a past, I was that difficult person. Um, I've shared some stories, but here's another one. Um, growing up, I was probably 16, 17, something like that in high school. And, uh, and I loved to torment my Uncle Ron. Um, he was just one of those guys, I, he, you could just kind of get under his skin and... And, uh, and I was real good at getting under his skin, and I kind of reveled in it in my unredeemed sort of way. My mom is laughing right now because she knows it's true. And so one afternoon, I had gathered some of my friends from the neighborhood, and we were having kind of a water fight. And Uncle Ron, I think, was babysitting us at the time or whatever sort of babysitting you do for a 16-year-old man. And so he was there. And, um, and so we got, you know, we started water fighting with Uncle Ron. And I was like, oh, I got a plan, y'all. I said, let's go ahead and let's get some water balloons and go up on the roof and we'll get them with the water balloons from the roof and then we'll kind of like, and then we have some other friends in the bushes and we'll cake them with flour after he gets soaked with water. So we did this and I thought it was hilarious, but Uncle Ron did not. In fact, Uncle Ron was so enraged at being turned into a, a human chicken cutlet that he chased us true story, around the entire block, multiple times, threatening to call the police on us for stealth assassins. 
Now, I do not think that would have held up in court, to be clear, okay? But he was not happy with this moment. See, I was, I was a hot mess, and pray for your past. Every time Nancy hears another story of me as a kid, she's like, God, pray for our children. What, have you, what are you going to inherit? I'm like, I don't know. I'm just hoping for the grace of God, I guess. When we talk about the leadership challenge, I think in all actuality, we could sum up a lot of the leadership challenge in one word. People. People. Like every single one of us in our lives have some sort of a teenage, unredeemed, John Lash, glorified Dennis the Menace that we got to deal with. We got that boss. We got that coworker. We got that family member. We've got that child. We've got that aunt or uncle. We've got that spouse, maybe. God help us. And we have a challenge when it comes to leadership. See, people are complicated. Can I get an amen? Oh, some of y'all don't have complicated people in your life. God bless y'all. I know I do because I am one. People are complicated. Check this out. But people are necessary. See, people are, are arguably the hardest aspect of our leadership, and yet people are the greatest resource any leader can have. And up to this point in Nehemiah's leadership journey, it has really been all about Nehemiah. It's all about Nehemiah, his capacity to receive God's burden, God's heart, God's vision, and God's plan. It's been all about Nehemiah's pliability to the will of God, and yet he comes to this juncture where he realizes to accomplish the vision, I'm going to need people. To receive the vision, it just takes God, but to accomplish the vision, it's going to take people. Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, one of my go-to leadership books, talks about the need to find the right people and get them in the right seat on the bus. In his book, Leading Change, a famous leadership book, John Cotter talks about the need for people and building what he calls a guiding coalition for leadership. See, major transformation, it is rarely the result of one charismatic individual. This is a flaw in our perspective, especially as North Americans and maybe Guyanese individuals as well when it comes to leadership. Because when we think leadership, if we think Walmart, we think who? Sam Walton. We think Apple, we think who? Steve Jobs. We think dismantling apartheid, we think who? Nelson Mandela. We think about single individuals, and yet it always takes a team for significant, lasting change. I want to dive in. I want to talk about spiritual leadership, but, but this, is not just, this is not just natural leadership. We're not just going to toss out natural leadership principles, but there is an incredible amount of wisdom in what we see Nehemiah do here in chapter 2 and some leadership principles that I do not want us to miss because this is what happens. Nehemiah, before he ever builds a wall, he builds a team. Nehemiah, before he ever steps out to rebuild a wall, he builds a team. Three leadership lessons I want us to take away from Nehemiah's strategic and spirit-led leadership. If you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to jot this one down. The first one is this. Embrace the king's army. Embrace the king's army. Let's jump into verse 9. Nehemiah says, So I went to the governor of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters Now, the king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. 
We know from scholars and historians that Nehemiah would have had about a two-month-long journey to get from Susa, to get from where he was in Persia, all the way to Jerusalem. Um, Now, Nehemiah was obviously not in the modern world. He couldn't just hop on a flight, zoop, and be there in a tin can, right? Nehemiah had to get up there in the horses and the camels, and he was going through what would be a very treacherous and dangerous journey. And so he wisely anticipates this and realizes, I can't even get there to start If I don't make it there alive, I need protection. And so Nehemiah wisely requests protection from the king. That'll preach all on its own. Nehemiah is aware of the danger of this situation. And I want to apply this in our context because many of us have maybe begun to rebuild. Maybe we started in the midst of this series. Maybe we've begun in the midst of this pandemic. Maybe we've looked at the rubble around us and we're like, man, God have mercy. We need some help in our family, in our lives, in our business, in whatever your context might be. And so many of you are starting to rebuild your life, your family, maybe your marriage, your business, your microchurch, the ministry that God has placed in your heart and placed in your hands. And, and so in Nehemiah's leadership journey, he recognizes that he will need a strong community around him. He will ultimately need the king's army. And so do we. And so do we. Here's what I need you to understand. We, it, it begins for leaders, kingdom leaders, who are going to get God's burden, God's heart, God's vision, God's plan. It starts with God. It starts with getting God's burden, heart, vision, and plan. But even with the right plan, even with the right plan that comes from God himself, God, creator God, you will not accomplish the mission in your own strength. Amen? You want to do anything that's significant, lasting, and eternal? It will take provision, and protection from God. I'm not sure what your burden is. I'm not sure what vision God has given you. I'm not sure what wall he is setting you to rebuild, but you must look around for support. Turn to your neighbor and say, who is your army? Who is your army? We've got to embrace God's army. Now, I want to use this as a, a bit of an operating analogy here because I think the, the first and most important group to enlist as you begin to step out with God's burden, God's heart, God's vision, and God's plan is to enlist the spiritual warriors. Anybody got like a prayer warrior in your life? Maybe it's you, a mom, a friend, a grandma, and you're like, man, thank God for them. They're the reason I'm still alive and not in jail or not whatever the case might be. See, we need, if you are going, if we are going to rebuild, it will require prayer support. Why? Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and spiritual force and hosts in the heavenly plate. Like, this isn't just some natural problem. There's a spiritual element and component to almost everything because we are spiritual people and there is a battle. I was reading a book. It's called Team of Teams, and it's a leadership parable. It's sort of a leadership fable looking at it through the lens of the Marine Corps and a lot of military sort of tactics. And so they were talking about in the Iraq War when things were going down, they had a very specific way that they would work through urban warfare. What they would do is that the first step would be to get the snipers up on top. They would get the snipers up on top. They had to make sure that they had a good vantage point and everything covered. And then and only then would the ground troops move in. The ground troops would move in, they would clear buildings, they would make sure civilians were safe, they would make sure everything was okay, and then when they got to the edge of their sniper cover, guess what they would do? Skirt! Stop! The snipers would pack up, they would move to the next building, they would reestablish the perimeter, they would tell them everything's clear, we got you, and then the ground troops would move forward. 
This will preach right here. Here's what they realized. They said, our ground troops can do things that need to be done in the tangible reality of things. But if they outrun their sniper coverage, they are done. The leadership principle was don't ever outrun your sniper coverage. Here's what I need us to realize. You might have pressed in for God's burden and God's heart and God's vision and God's plan. But if all you're banking on is your ground troops to make it happen, it will not turn out well. Don't move past your support from above. I, I, I think it's good. Here's the application. You're like, well, I, I kind of am tracking with the analogy, air support, prayer support. Yeah, there you go. Okay, here, here's, my, here's my application point right here. Recruit a team of one to five spiritual snipers that are going to be covering things from the air in prayer. Recruit a team of people. You're like, you are not, I'm, I'm just telling you, you are not yet ready to step out with God's burden, God's heart, God's vision, and God's plan unless it is deeply bathed, saturated, and covered in intercessory prayer. You know what we do every single morning before service? We have people in that room praying heaven down. Don't outrun your sniper coverage. This is, this is all throughout the Bible. 2 Corinthians, Paul says, for though we walk in the flesh, we don't wage war according to the flesh. Why? Because the weapons of our warfare, they're not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. All throughout the New Testament in these epistles, Paul is writing, he's entreating, he's begging, he's like, pray for me. Pray that God would open a door. Pray that I would speak it boldly. Pray that God would use me. This is the apostle Paul, buddy penned two-thirds of the New Testament. And he's like, man, I can't go anywhere without prayer support. And we step out and we're like, man, I got this. It's like, you don't got this. Great leadership realizes if you don't have it covered from the air, you don't have it covered at all. I give this as a little bonus point here, and don't just stop at asking for prayer. When you ask people to pray and they come back with thoughts from Jesus, listen. Listen. I, it breaks my heart. The amount of people are like, Pastor John, can you pray for me? About, man, I met this girl. Ooh, Pastor John. Or lady, man, I met this guy. Like, can you pray? I'm like, yeah. And then, and then they're like, what do you think? I'm like, man, I don't know. I just, sometimes I'm like, oh, that's great. Sometimes I'm like, I don't know. And they're like, well, I actually already started dating them. I'm like, oh, well, okay. Don't really know what to do with that now. I guess God bless you and hope for the best. Like, don't just stop at asking for prayer. Listen for the wisdom that your prayer support team shares. I understand this should be a dumb moment. We shouldn't be surprised by this. It always breaks my heart how many prayers God answers and then we ignore the answers. For this leadership challenge, we need God's help. We need God's strength. We need God's support, and we need God's people. Embrace the king's army. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Say, you want to pray for me? You want to you you be part of my team? You want to pray for me? Point number one, embrace the king's army. Point number two is this, expect opposition. Expect opposition. Let's jump back into the passage. Verse 10, when Sanballat the Horonite... There's an interesting one. And Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this. They were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Skip down to verse 19. When, they, when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshev the Arid heard about it, when they actually saw there was some traction, when they actually saw there was some movement, then they take it to the next level. They go ahead and start heckling. They mock and ridicule and say, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? They start this like low-key blackmailing, like, oh, what are you doing? Do I need to tell the king on you? 
The second point is to expect opposition. I, I need us to understand, and we know this in the natural, right? Anything that is worth doing will inevitably be challenging. Any sort of seeking, longing, lasting, persistent, especially eternal change will encounter opposition. Expect opposition. Be realistic. This will not be easy. What's interesting here in this passage is these three individuals represent the three geographic regions all around Jerusalem. Literally, Nehemiah is encountering opposition from every side. Literally, geographically. Now, what we find about these individuals is really unique, and I think it's helpful for us. Sanballat, that's a fun one, is the, uh, he's actually referenced in an Aramaic letter dating back to 410 B.C. to Jerusalem seeking help in rebuilding the temple. It references Sanballat, quote, the governor of Samaria. Now, if this is the same Sanballat, which most scholars believe it to be, it wasn't exactly the most popular name in the world. They know two unique and important things about him. Number one, Buddy was formidable. He had power. He had wealth. He had means by which people would request his assistance. And number two, we know in the letter it references the name of his two sons, both of whom had the prefix Yah in there. Yah is obviously the Hebrew word, the prefix for Yahweh or God. Tobiah, this other guy that's referenced there who's one of these members of opposition, is a derivative of the Hebrew name Tobiah. Tobiah would mean Yahweh, God, is good. So you have this guy, Samballot, and you have Tobiah, both in accordance with the uniqueness of their names. We know they were some kind of believers, They had some kind of faith thing. They had some sort of faith lineage. They're supposed to be theoretically on the team. And can we just just bear our our hearts for a little bit here? Blindsided opposition is always the hardest. There's some people you're like, oh, man, I already know. But when the stab comes from behind, man, it hurts something fierce. Nehemiah is learning, and we're learning here to expect opposition. Many great ideas and visions never came to pass because the leader did not have enough endurance big enough for the vision. Great vision needs great endurance. Great vision needs great endurance. Leaders need grit. This is why we must expect opposition. God's calling you to something, God's burden, God's heart, God's vision, God's plan. You're like, Pastor John, if God is for me, who can be against me? Amen. They might not win, but they're definitely going to be against you. We see it all throughout. We've experienced it all the time. Expect opposition. Assume this will not be easy. You want to expect opposition from the outside, from the Samballots and the Tobias and, and the situations and individuals. This is the all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, Paul says, will suffer persecution. But it's not just from people. We expect opposition in the spiritual realm as well. Ephesians 6 says, finally be strong in the Lord. And the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against, what does it say? The schemes of who? I know we're so enlightened and postmodern. You don't enlighten beyond truth. And here's the truth. There is a real enemy of your souls and his name is the devil. And he really hates people. In fact, his mission is to steal and kill and destroy. And if you follow Jesus, and even if you don't, the case is still the same. There is a real enemy with real schemes. Now, not everything's a devil. 
Some challenges are just natural. Some challenges are based on our own stupidity, if we're being honest. Not everything is the devil. Some leadership challenges, are, they just, life just happens, but some things are the devil. Some things are just natural. Some things are just repercussions of consequences and decisions and actions and things we've said and done. Some things are the enemy, and we need to be prepared. We need to call in the snipers. We need to expect opposition while realizing, like Nehemiah says at the very end here, the God of heaven is with us. Number one, embrace the king's army. Number two, expect opposition. And finally, number three, mobilize your team. Everybody say mobilize. Mobilize your team. Did I ever tell you guys about the time I got smuggled into Canada? Have I told you guys that? No? That really happened. You're like, who would want to get smuggled into Canada? Leave them alone, okay? We love y'all, Canada. Uh, I was playing hockey along with all 15 of us in South Florida. And, um, and I was playing. I had done different things. And so I was playing at a tournament. Mom, I don't know if you actually know this story, so this will be exciting for you. Um, I was playing at a tournament in upstate New York. And while I was there, another team that I had played for, a travel team, was like, hey, listen, we've got this sort of Team USA situation in Canada, a little bit across the border. We need you to come and play for us. And so I was like, man, that sounds amazing. We were playing Australia and, and, New, and New Zealand and all these different countries. Like, that sounds so great. And so I was like, yeah, yeah, just come. And and, uh, and so I got all my stuff, and, and, and I jumped in this truck and, and went. I, you know, I knew the crew. And, um, and so we went to this tournament, and uh, it, was kind of, it was real late, sort of the middle of the night-ish kind of a situation there. And so they were driving through, and uh, I was like, man, we're, there weren't a lot of seats. And so I was like, I'll just crash in the back in this, like, pickup truck with a bed in the back. And they're like, yeah, that's fine. And, and I remember sort of groggily in my sleep at some point that I had hockey bags piled on top of me as I was sleeping in the back of the truck, and it smelled like death. And I was like, this is very weird, but I'm very tired, so whatever. And, and we got to the tournament, and I woke up, and they were like, hey, by the way, um, we had to smuggle you through the border. I was like, rewind what? They're like, yeah, 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 we had your ID, but we realized like, you were sleeping, you didn't have your passport, so we had to, you know, you just, you're in Canada now. I'm like, are you kidding me? Okay, let's go play. And, uh, and so the tournament was great, and we made it back. And, and apparently, so sorry, USA, I don't really know how that happened. Um, but this is what Nehemiah does. I mean, not Canada and smuggling people and all that good stuff. But, but Nehemiah, he goes ahead and he realizes, I'm going to have to, some of you are looking at me like you are like, how is this my pastor? All things are possible to him who believes, all right? God can do anything, all right? Praise the Lord. This is what Nehemiah does. He, 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 he assembles his team. Look at this, verse 11. He says, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. Now I had not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me that I was riding on. Nehemiah realizes sort of the African proverb, if you want to go fast, you go alone. But if you want to go far, what does this say? You go together. You go together. This, by the way, is the power of microchurches. Like you heard up there, like different people, we didn't pay them money to say great things about microchurches. We've experienced, so many of us have experienced the power of strength in numbers. Like it says in Proverbs, it says, in a multitude of counselors, there's safety. The MO of the enemy is the same thing back then that he does right now. It's divide and conquer. It's push people out to the edges and take them out. Nehemiah realizes if we are going to accomplish God's burden, God's heart, God's vision, God's plan, it will take a team. But Nehemiah does something very specific with that team, and I don't want us to miss this. Verse 13, he gets together this small core, this guiding coalition, to use John Cotter's words, if you will, and, and he begins to take them and walk them through the walls, 
They go through the jackal wall and the valley gate and the dung gate and the king's pool and, and back through the valley gate. And then they get to a point where the walls are so broken down that an animal can't fit anymore. And so he's like, well, guys, we got to go through. And he takes them on this process. What is up with the small core at night? Are any of us brave enough to admit that we might be still a tiny bit afraid of the dark? Sometimes, maybe, possibly after watching a horror movie? Okay, the rest of y'all are lying. That's okay. We still love you. Nehemiah's like, listen, these people don't feel it yet. Here's the context. Nehemiah, in his context, at this point, the people have been back in Jerusalem for almost 100 years. Nehemiah is having to do two things. Number one, there's great wisdom and that Nehemiah is stepping in. He's heard about Jerusalem. He's heard about the walls broken down. He's heard about things in rubble, but he's like, you know, I don't want to concoct a plan without first verifying my intel. Parents, how many of y'all have had a kid come running to you, she hit me, and you're like, what? And you come over and start screaming, and then you realize, wait a second, she didn't hit you, you hit her. And then she could, you know, responded back. You have a coworker come up and say, man, I hate to be the one to be the bearer of bad news, but you know, that person really didn't respond to the email, and that's why we didn't meet the deadline. And you go and swing, and you're like, what happened to this? How could you not do it? And you finally, you realize the story you were told was not the whole story. Anybody been there before? Nehemiah's like, he, he has such a wise approach in that he is patient and does not assume that his intel was accurate. He goes to verify for himself. This is good. This is great leadership. But he does something else really profound. Nehemiah realizes th these people at this point, these leaders in Jerusalem, these individuals that have been there, these exiles, they have been living there for over a generation. They've been living there at this point, Bible scholars tell us, about a hundred years they no longer, if he would have just taken them out during the day, guess what would have happened? Here's home. Here, here it is, Nehemiah. Check it out, man. It, it's a mess, but they don't know it's a mess. Why? Because they've never even known the walls built up. All they've known is brokenness. And Nehemiah realizes, if I am going to help these leaders move forward towards a rebuild, they will not fix it until they feel it. So he takes them to the gates at night. They're walking around. They already know it's a little sketchy. They've got all these enemies that have already said, what are you doing here? They know they've got some opposition. He said, come on, guys, let's take a little tour. They start walking around the gates. They're like, well, at least we've got a horse, man. If something goes crazy, he can, he can shoot out of here in the horse and go get people, and they can come back. In. And then Nehemiah's like, oh, man, what a bummer, guys. There's this spot that's so broken down, I can't even take my horse through it. I guess we'll just walk. And they're like, are they start walking through. All the while, he is helping them to feel the brokenness that has already been there they've gotten used to. This, by the way, is a problem with a deconstruction movement with no vision for reconstruction. People don't feel the need to rebuild because brokenness is all they've ever known. Nehemiah says, y'all got to feel it first. You guys have to see it clearly. This, um, oops, sorry, Jamie. This is leadership gold. This is leadership gold. For those of us that have struggled to move our families forward, to move our coworkers forward, to move our nonprofit forward, to move our ministry, our microchurch forward, to move the vision forward, and we've encountered opposition, not from them out there, but from our team right here. Here is what Nehemiah does that we so often miss. The first step in moving people is not casting a clear vision. The first step in moving people is helping them see why we can't stay here anymore. 
It's so good. I'm reading this. I'm like, oh, Jesus. This is, this is the closest I've ever got to like, I might write a book on this. Ted Joe, don't get me started. But I'm like, man, there's such leadership gold here from Nehemiah the cupbearer. What in the world? It's because it's God's burden, God's heart, God's vision, God's plan. Four months of prayer and fasting can do a whole lot when it comes to strategery. Not a real word, but I'm going to use it again. Nehemiah needs them to have fresh eyes. He realizes the danger of familiarity. And he says, listen, before I'm ever going to be able to rally the masses to action, I've got to go first, confirm my intel, and rally my guiding coalition. I need to get them to a spot where they're like, Nehemiah, this isn't, this isn't okay. Nehemiah, this is dangerous. Nehemiah, we could get attacked at any moment. Nehemiah, the walls are broken down. Nehemiah, if you left your horse there and people could have come and we could have gotten killed and no one would have been a Nehemiah, what are we going to do? If he doesn't get them there, he doesn't get them anywhere. Nehemiah realizes the first step is to let them know that here is no longer an option. He begins by assembling but he culminates his leadership in now mobilizing his team to action. This is Nehemiah's meeting before the meeting. Those of you in leadership, it's like, man, if you're going to have some big meeting, don't just have the big meeting. Have a few small meetings before the meeting to actually confirm and verify. Uh, do you have your stuff ready? Are you, do you have a compelling vision? Do you have the right vantage point? Do you have the right perspective? All of these good, great, best practice leadership things Nehemiah is living out before us. You want to mobilize your team? You want to move them towards God's burden, God's heart, God's vision, and God's plan. Take them to the gates at night. Here's the application point. Identify the gates. Identify the gates. Identify the spaces where you feel where you are the most vulnerable. Leadership, great leadership starts with identifying the gates and then bringing people into that space. Is it debt? How do you lead your family to get out of debt? You show them the gates. You show them the problem. You rally the team. You pull together your core business people and say, listen, we got to get this. If you're on a personal level, you're like, man, it's debt. Get a budget. Track your spending. You're like, I have no idea. Is it 35 bucks a week on coffee? That's fixable. But you got to know what the broken down gates are before you're ever going to fix them. Identify the gates. Is it time management? What are the times of the week where you're the most unproductive? Uh, that's a problem. You don't know, so it's okay. Do an inventory. Track your time for the week. Realize, man, I know I say I'm so busy and I got no time. I actually have lots of time. I just waste it. Identify the gates. Is it issues? Is it conflict at work? Are there team members that drain you the most? Who are they and why is that the case? Identify the gates. Sometimes we're dealing with external gates that are broken down. It's situations, it's other people, it's relationships. But there are also internal gates that are broken down. This is why I preach about and talk so freely about the power of counseling, especially Christian counseling, counselors who love and know Jesus, who base stuff on Bible as well as scientific and best case scenario, best practice in, in, in the field. This is why therapy is important, helpful, and powerful. Identify the gates, the ones out there and the broken down ones in here. What's torn down? What's happening at the root level? Name it, show it, so you can deal with it. See, Nehemiah's wisdom in his leadership approach is really something to marvel at. As he's led by the Spirit of God, 
by identifying and exposing the broken down gates, you create a clarity in identifying the problem and an urgency for solving the problem. And by the way, you must have both. Clarity and urgency. This is a culminating moment in Nehemiah's leadership. At this point, the the vision has marinated in his soul for months. He's prayed, he's fasted for God's burden and God's heart, God's vision, God's plan. He's gone to the king because if it's the Lord's vision, it will bring about the Lord's provision. And the king has given him everything that he needs. He is now confirmed through his midnight prayer walk an acute understanding of the what that has happened, what is actually the case with these walls, and the deeper and important why. Why are the walls broken down? Are the people just lazy? Is it a lack of resources? Or are they terrified of the opposition or a mixture of all of the above? And now and only now does he finally cast that clear and compelling vision and plan to a small committed core. This is his guiding coalition moment. He gets to the end of this prayer walk while I imagine some of them are quaking in their spiritual boots. And he says this, verse 17. Then Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem, it lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild. I told them about the gracious hand of my God, and they replied to me, let us start rebuilding. So they began the work. Nehemiah has this patience. He doesn't go and just start blabbing at the mouth. He doesn't get, a, he doesn't get a, an inkling of passion and go post on social media. Nehemiah lets it sit and marinate in his soul as he co-crafts a vision with God himself. He goes through a process that is deeply intentional and strategic and wise. And finally, he casts a vision. And they start to move. You say, Pastor John, it's, it, it, it's good that it's, that it's clear and And great that it's urgent and and I'm motivated to see change. But Pastor John, I I can't. I can't. If I'm being circumspect, I I created the problem. I, I actually feel like I make the problem worse when I try to go to fix it. If I'm even being a little bit more honest, Pastor John, I am the problem to these broken down gates in my life. Which is why our leadership and our competence alone will not cut it. We need a greater Nehemiah to lead our rebuild. I'm going to get ready to close it here and we'll sing a chorus in just a moment. But I came across a story this week and, and I could not help but think of the power of this landing for what we're going to need in our story. It's a book called Extreme Ownership. It's about the Uf, U.S. Navy SEALs and And in one section of the book, they talk about Hell Week. Hell Week is like this this culminating training moment that just breaks people down to the bare essentials, these superhuman feats they ask these guys to go through. And, And during Hell Week, one of the activities is they'll have six different boats. Each boat has a leader, and they tell the guys, all right, here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna row out to the middle, you're gonna you're gonna jump out of the boat, you're gonna swim a couple hundred yards, you're gonna get back in the boat, you're gonna row a couple hundred yards back, then you're gonna Get the boat, you're going to carry it all the way back over the sand dunes, the ones you carried it in before, and the winner gets to rest, and the loser jumps right back in the boat and goes at it again, over and over and over. It's crazy. They were like, you know, something was really strange, though. One hell week in particular, the same boat kept winning every single time, boat number two. 
They said boat number two won the first race, the second race, the third race, the fourth race, the fifth race. They just kept winning, and they got a little bit more of a break, and they were like, man, well, maybe, maybe it's because the, this team is well-rested. They just keep winning. It's just like this cycle that continues. And, and so finally they were so curious and fed up simultaneously because there was one boat that won every single time, boat two, but boat six lost every single time. And they were like, you know what? Hey, Captain Boat Two, he's like, hoorah, you're going to Boat Six. He's like, oh. So he goes over to Boat Six. His team is dead dog tired. They have gotten no breaks. They have gotten last place. They've had the fastest turnaround every single time they've had to get back in the boat and go. Guess who won that race? Boat Six. This is what the book says. They said, and we just realized it was a turning point for a lot of our vision when it came to leadership because we realized the success was not in the strength of the team, but in the power of the right leader in your boat. And church, I need to tell you at the end of the day, if we are going to be the Nehemiahs that God has called us to be, if we are going to be the leaders that look at a world in shambles, full of dissension, full of division, full of opposition, full of leadership challenges, and rise to the surface, we know intuitively, man, I feel like I could get a little bit of the ways, I feel like I could add a little bit of value, but I can't break down the walls out there, I can't even fix the walls in here. Which is why the solution for us is not found in us, it is found in the greater Nehemiah, the one that came and died and rose again is Jesus. Friends, it's been a rough season and we're tired and we're hurting. And for so many of us, we, we look at these walls in disrepair. There's so much brokenness. There's so much pain on the outside, on the inside, which is why my confidence and our confidence is not in us and our leadership. It's in his. Nehemiah was a great leader. But there was one so much greater than Nehemiah who came, Jesus the Messiah, and you need him in your boat. He encountered great opposition from the religious leaders and the Pharisees. He took a walk in the middle of the night grappling in the Garden of Gethsemane with the great cost that it would take to rebuild and tear our broken and tear down walls. He cast a clear vision and mobilized us to go on the mission, and he reminds us that despite the opposition we will encounter, he is with us yeah it's good news it's great news friends the question at the end of the day is is he the captain of your boat let's pray why don't you join me for a moment of quiet and privacy just between god as we respond jesus we invite you we welcome you we thank you that you're already here moving and lord i'm praying that that your kindness right now would would lead us forward in life-giving repentance to pause for just a moment. If you're here this morning in the room, maybe you're watching online and, and you know Jesus is not the leader. Jesus is not the captain of your boat. He is not the leader of your life. You realize your deep and urgent need for him. Here's the great news. All you need to do is surrender the helm. All you need to do is surrender and say, Jesus, you're going to be the leader of my life from now on. I am doing a bad job. I need your help. Your Lord your leader, your CEO, your captain of my ship, you're the savior of my soul. Like, Jesus, here it is. I'm yours. You can make that decision, by the way, this very morning, wherever you're watching or whenever you're watching later on demand. There, there's a whole group. If you're watching church online, you can request prayer in the chat. Before we're done this morning, if you're in the room, you can come forward with one of our prayer partners. We would love to pray with you, walk you through what that decision means. You can text Jesus to the number on the screen, and we'll text you back or call you back, whatever your preference might be. But maybe you're here and you're already a follower of Jesus. Jesus is already Lord. Jesus is already leader.
but you need wisdom to better embrace and mobilize the people God has placed around you. If you're in that space, you've been kind of lone rangering it spiritually and you're realizing this is not the way to go. Maybe I'll make it, maybe, possibly, but I definitely won't become all that God has created me to be. I want you to just look to heaven and say, Lord, help me lead. Lord, teach me to lead like you've created me to lead. Help me follow. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to close in a final chorus. If you guys could stand to your feet with me. And if I could get some of our prayer partners up here at the front. If you're online, you can request prayer right there in the chat. If you're in the room, as soon as we start to sing and God's moving on your heart, maybe you want to make a decision to trust Jesus as Lord and leader. I want to invite you to come forward as we sing this final chorus. We've got some amazing prayer partners up here that would love to pray with you, encourage you, and answer any questions you have about your faith journey. But let's go ahead and go to the Lord and let's sing one final chorus to him. tried so hard to see it. It took me so long to believe it. And you choose someone like me to carry your victory. Perfection could trust in your competence. We trust in your abilities. God, my prayer is for every single person under the sound of my voice right now, every single person in the room, every single person watching online right now or maybe watching later on demand that, that they would look to you as leader, that they would look to you as captain, that they would look to you as the CEO, the director, the life coach, the whatever language that works for them that they have been looking and longing for because it's who you are. We were made for relationship with you. Lord, I'm praying that, that we would say yes. Lord, for every disciple, for every follower of Jesus in our church, Lord, I'm praying that we would continue to press in for your burden, your heart, your vision, your plan, that we would recruit the, the, the king's army around us that we need for prayer support, that in the midst of opposition, we would stay strong and steadfast. And Lord, we would follow you wherever you lead us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That's good. Love you, church.